from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Worship, worship God with gladness. Come into God's presence with singing. We are God's people, the sheep of God's pasture. Give thanks to the Lord. Bless God's holy name. For God's steadfast love is present now and endures forever. Let us worship God. Our first scripture reading comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Please turn with me to page 200 of the New Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. You must understand this, that in the last days, distressing times will come. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligates, brutes, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lo lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the outward form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid them, for among them are those who make their way into households and captivate silly women, overwhelmed by their sin and swayed by all kinds of desires, who are always being instructed and can never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our scripture continues with Isaiah chapter 26, verses 16 to 21. Let us continue to hear God's word for us this morning. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was on them. Like a woman with child who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to her time, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were with child, we writhed, but we gave birth only to wind. We have won no victories on earth, and no one is born to inhabit the world. Your dead shall live, their corpses shall rise. O dwellers in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a radiant dew, and the earth will give birth to those long dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the wrath is past. For the Lord comes out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will disclose the bloodshed on it and will no longer cover its slain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ, 
It's in his name that we pray. Amen. It was not unusual for the young teenager named Timothy, called to be a pastor in his teenage years of the congregation that was growing up in the city of Ephesus. It was not unusual for Timothy to receive letters from his mentor, from the Apostle Paul. We heard part of that encouragement, part of that word from the Apostle Paul uh, to Timothy this morning. Let me just recap some of what we heard read from James. You must understand this, says Paul to Timothy, that in the last days distressing times will come. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligates, brutes, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the outward form of godliness but denying its power. Timothy, good luck. To be sure, there have been Christians in every age that have turned to this text to prove that the time they were living in was, in fact, the end of time. That they would look around and, and see the world through a particular lens, and they would go back to the words that Paul offered to Timothy and said, oh, see here, these correspond. Our times are, are reflecting this criteria of the end of days. Certainly it is our time that the Lord is going to come back. Certainly we are living at the end of history. Jesus is coming soon. The end of the world is upon us. We have seen the signs of the times. One of the more sophisticated cries that often goes out from Christians related to these so-called signs of the times is that the world or our nation or our city has become secularized. Uh, we prefer this softer, more sophisticated term, secular, as uh, com when compared to this more apocalyptic moment that some Christians are talking about, saying that the end of history is upon us. Look, just read these words from Paul to Timothy. The, the more sophisticated among us would, would prefer uh, to talk about secularism and say that these descriptors that Paul offers to Timothy, these are just simply symptoms of what happens when a people abandon God. All these things that Paul writes about are simply just symptoms of a disease called secularism. Now secularism is more than just people choosing sports or leisure or sleeping in on a Sunday morning instead of going to church. Secularism is more than the reality that on many college campuses, religion is thought more of as a punchline than serious inquiry. And certainly more than the fact that the target clerk in the coming weeks will be saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Secularism is so much more than that. Secularism is a pervasive, all-encompassing worldview and ethic that understands the world and our place in it as all there is. 
to quote Nietzsche's character Zarathustra, there is no hell to be feared and no heaven to be gained. The world as you see it, what is in front of you, what you can touch, what you can quantify, that is all that there is. By definition, secular refers to that which is temporal, to that which is finite, to that which has the capacity to die, to fade away. That is the secular. By contrast, the sacred is characterized by the eternal, by the infinite, by the everlasting. Secular is what we can touch, what we can hold on to, what we can see, and the sacred is beyond us. The sacred is outside of us. And many Christians today blame secularization on science. They They blame secularization on atheism. They blame secularization on liberal education. They blame it on progressive politics and humanistic philosophies. There are many Christians across the theological spectra from many different denominational traditions that lament the diminished role faith plays in our society today. And they will say, we live in a secular age, a secular time. Before we point fingers and lay blame, we might want to do some self-reflection on this point. Uh, Many years ago, Katie and I rented a tenant house on a farm in bucolic Chester County, Pennsylvania. That's Andrew Wyeth country. Uh, We had some problems in our time renting this house uh, with our landlord. Uh, Maybe you've had an experience like this before with a landlord who knew there were problems and was not attentive to them. You would, would call them and say, hey, this is broken or this needs to be addressed. And they may say something like, well, that's not my issue. It's your issue. It was that one of the, those kinds of relationships, very contentious. So one day we, we came home and we discovered that the whole basement had been flooded, two feet of water resting there. And I immediately thought, Our landlord should have known this was coming. Our landlord knew that the the, the plumbing was old and the the pipes were deteriorating, knew that at some point one of those pipes would burst, there would be a leak, and sure enough, there would be a flood. And we're, we're living into that reality. We're living into the fact that the landlord didn't fix this problem. And then I went into the basement and sort of waded in the water and and came upon a sink and, and the faucet was open and the water was running. And then I remembered something. I'd remembered I had washed out painting rags in that big sink and that I had put the, the, the painting rags over the drain and that I had forgotten to turn off the water. I had caused the flood. It had nothing to do with the landlord's neglect. The illustration is helpful, I think, for us this morning. For as we mark the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, we must admit that in many ways the Reformation itself was the cause of the flood we call secularism. There is no greater scholar on secularism than Charles Taylor, who was a professor teaching throughout his career at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. In his most grand work, 900-page work, in fact, 
a book he entitled A Secular Age, Dr. Taylor traces the steps as to how the Reformation actually influenced and spawned this secular age in which we live. For the Reformation, he notes, sought to disenchant what the Catholic Church deemed to be sacred. What the Catholic Church deemed to be that which was a doorway or a portal to receive the benefits of God, the blessing of the divine. If you wanted the sacred prior to the Reformation, if you wanted God, then you'd have to go through the church. Then you'd have to pay for indulgences. Then you'd have to pay to see or to touch these religious relics. Then you'd have to submit to church doctrine and papal authority. And what the reformers sought to do in part was to strip away the power of these entities. To say that these things do not have a sacred power. These, like everything else, is simply secular. It's temporal. It's, it's finite. It's provisional. It's provisional. It, it is fading away. It's not sacred in and of itself. The church, its doctrine, its relics, the pope, were, were no longer access points to the divine. The only access point, said the reformers, the only access point to God was God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you come into relationship with the divine. That's how you receive God's blessings. The reformers argued that nothing else was needed to commune with God. Nothing else was, was needed to be saved. Nothing else was needed to, to be blessed by God, to be in relationship with God except God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. See, throughout the Middle Ages and into the early part of the 16th century, the Roman church claimed to possess the remedy, to possess the answer, to possess the protection from evil, from affliction, from all that would seek to do you in. People were encouraged to look at the world as, as, as somewhat of a, of a spiritual battle, that there were forces of good and forces of evil in conflict with one another. And the church had the magic to protect you. The church had what you needed so that you would be safe that you would still be on God's side. And if you didn't pursue these things, if you didn't pursue these, these, this magic, then, then you were in danger of losing your salvation. You were in danger of losing favor with God. And, and that there were these powers active in the world. These, these powers that, that sought to manipulate you and sought to change you and sought to tempt you. It was the devil versus God and the devil was after your soul and you needed the church's magic to protect yourself from the devil. The reformers did not dismiss this idea that we were at spiritual war, that there were forces beyond our comprehension, alive and well. But what they did assert was that evil and calamity and affliction could only be overcome through Christ. Not through our works, not through indulgences, not through piety, not through relics, not through church doctrine, not even through the Pope. And what is so important in understanding this 
part of the conversation is this theological commitment from the reformers. And it's subtle, but it begins to, to turn the church. And it's this uh, conviction that once you're saved, you are always saved. You can't lose your salvation. Your destiny was secure, and no demon and no devil could ever take it away from you as long as you trusted in the grace of God. And so once you have this theological conviction as part of the center of the movement, the people begin to realize that they do not need the sacred magic of the church. They don't need the sacred magic because they have everything they need in Christ. And if you don't need the magic, you don't need the church. You don't need the church. Because if you got Christ, you don't need anything else. And the world, uh, starting with the church, begins to turn ever so slowly. It's really a 500-year turn and begins to, to think of the world as something that is void of the divine. Because where the divine is, is, is in that sweet afterlife, in the sweet by and by, in, in heaven. That's where, where, where God is. There, there is no more magic here on earth. We don't need it anymore because of what Christ has done. Now the magic is in heaven. Now the magic is in everlasting life. God exists, perhaps, but God is in heaven. God is beyond, and God is certainly not involved in the affairs of the world. And so as we continue to mark this 500th anniversary of the, the Reformation, we have to say that one of the unintended consequences of this movement was, in fact, the secularization of the West. Some of us, even today, complain about how godless, how secular, how unbelieving our culture is when, in fact, it was the Protestants that caused the flood. The Protestants were at, at the beginning of this secular age. And yet, even as we evaluate our secularism as a culture, as a, as a people, even in the year 2017, there still are glimpses of people longing for the sacred. We still see it today. You just look at some of the stories that people are, are consuming, stories that at once affirm science and, and humanistic values, right? These are stories that bring those values front and center. Yet, in many of these stories, they all oftentimes leave room for some otherworldly or, or sacred or transcendent quality. There, there are tons of examples of this, but I, I really wanted to talk about Marvel Avengers. Never done that in a sermon, so here we go. The Marvel Avengers are, are the perfect example of of this reality, right? The premise of these films, if you know these films or these stories in comic book form, assumes that there is a battle between this world and other worlds. There's a battle between good and evil. And there are good guys, the Avengers, good guys that are, that are brought together uh, on a team. And, and one of the leaders of this team is a guy named Tony Stark, right? Who is Iron Man. Stark is 
a technology entrepreneur. He's a scientist, and he's got every gadget that you need to confront evil in the world. He's got everything that you think you need. He can fly in his suit. He, he, he has the best technology to confront these otherworldly problems that are invading the earth. He uses science and technology to fight this good fight. And you think, of course, that's all we need. You know, in the 21st century, in 2017, that's all we need. All, all we need is Iron Man. All we need is technology. All we need is these humanistic values. And we can deliver ourselves from all that inflicts us. But the Avengers are more than just Tony Stark. And Tony Stark himself realizes that he cannot do it himself. He cannot save the world himself. And so as part of the Avengers, you have a guy named Thor, the god of Asgard, breaking into our world to confront evil and its power. You think people with 21st century sensibilities would be like, Thor, get out of here. But I think Thor is now releasing its third or fourth movie. We love Thor. Thor shows up on the scene and we say, yes, we need more than what Tony Stark can offer us. We need more than science. We need more than humanism. We need more than technology. We need something from beyond to come and save the day. And Thor shows up on the screen and everyone applauds. Stories like this get our attention because I think they tap into something we instinctually assume. We are secular. We are secular. We are finite. We're going to die. We don't have the power to overcome evil or inhumanity. We don't have the power to overcome death as hard as we try. We don't have the power to overcome anxiety and spiritual, emotional, and psychological estrangement. They are still with us. And we need something from beyond, something from outside of ourselves. We long for intervention. We long for what C.S. Lewis calls a deeper magic. We long for something beyond us, something transcendent to enter into our secular lives, to defeat evil, to redeem our past, to mend our broken hearts, to heal enmity, and to give our life purpose and meaning. I think for many of us, we have we've resigned ourselves to think that the divine or the sacred life is just something we receive after we die. We long for the sacred right now, but we've, we've given up hope in some ways to think that God could be with us and for us in our living in this very moment. You know, when the prophet Isaiah wrote the 26th chapter of the book that bears his name, it was a time of great crisis and anxiety for the people of God. The Assyrians were breathing down their necks. Death and destruction loomed. And the prophet writes these beautiful words, words that are certainly appropriate on All Saints Day. Your dead shall live, their corpses shall rise. O dwellers in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Now, many Christians have come uh, in the following generations uh, after these words were, were written and, and people of faith and Christians have said, oh, this is talking about the sweet by and by. But when the prophet Isaiah was speaking to the people, they were expecting God to intervene in this very secular crisis. 
in the now, in the moment. It wasn't in the sweet by and by only, but the dead would rise now. The corpses shall rise now. Dwellers in the dust will be awake and sing for joy now. They believe this life, this rising, this sense of being woke and this joy could come to them in their secular age, in their moment of crisis. And the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to wait to heaven to receive the sacred. We don't have to wait until heaven to receive God. To paraphrase Brazilian nun Yvonne Gabera, she says, there is a sacred, there is sacred rather, in the here and now, in the limits of our bodies, our hearts, and our daily routine. Friends, the reformers never intended for the Christian to live as if this life was void of the sacred. God, they believed, continues to enter into human history over and over again and seeks to enter into your life and my life right now, as secular as it may seem. This is the very pattern of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The secular, the sacred rather, became secular. Why? The sacred became secular so that the secular could become sacred. And that is our witness to a God who causes us to live, a God who causes us to rise, a God who causes us to stay woke, a God who causes us to sing for joy because God is here right now for us and for the sake of the world. Amen.